Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 29 this morning. As you turn there, I think you can do two things at once. You can be turning there and thinking about the Mission Impossible movies. Or maybe if you're of that age, the Mission Impossible series, that might be news for some people. It was uh, a series in the 60s, it was made into movies uh, in the 90s and aughts. And um, I think we all know, though, the beginning of Mission Impossible. I'm not going to try and do that, that little tingle tune. But you know what it sounds like. We all hear it in our heads. And, and it's the lighting of the fuse, right? And the fuse is lit. And, and in the series and the movies, the fuse is lit and goes across the screen slowly. And on the screen are flashes of what the impossible mission is going to be and kind of highlights of how they're going to, to solve this impossible mission. The Gospels are really clear that Jesus came on a mission. And so I wonder what the highlights would be of Matthew. What would be shown up on the screen that would, that would indicate what the mission was and how he was going to complete that mission? I have a couple ideas I'd like to throw out. I think his birth would certainly be a flash up on the screen, right? Maybe the Magi, a quick flash of the, the wise men who came. Maybe, a, maybe the flash of the temptation in the desert with Satan. Or him standing on a mount with many people sitting at his feet teaching. Or maybe the flash of him standing in the boat calming the storm. Or a quick montage of his healings. Or perhaps the feeding of the 5,000 would be in that. Or, or, or a flash of him, as is mentioned earlier, of him showing his divine glory, the transfiguration on the mount. Maybe we would see a flash of his triumphal entry, him sitting on the donkey and, and people laying palm branches down. And maybe some of the last flashes on the screen would be maybe him wearing a crown of thorns or a flash of him being scourged or another flash of him up on the cross. But I'm positive that the montage would end with maybe not a flash, but maybe an enduring image of a tomb where the rock is rolled away and it's empty. But maybe, just maybe, there would also be a montage of, of his run-ins with the Pharisees. And maybe even a picture of a word picture that that Jesus paints for us this morning in the text of his mission. Look with me at chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is, Jesus, 
and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. There's a word picture that Jesus is painting there, isn't it? And we all kind of get that image of, of a house that is, it, who, whose strong man is in there and a person comes in and before he can plunder the house, he must do something with this strong man. Before he can do anything to the house, before he can take anything, any of the possessions, he must deal with this strong man. That was Jesus' mission, to deal with this strong man. As we enter our story, Jesus' mission is under attack by the Pharisees here. So far in the Gospels, he's been healing the sick, he's been raising the dead, he's been teaching with authority, he's even forgiven sins. And people begin to wonder, they begin to wonder, they say in, in verse 22 or 23, can this be the son of David? What they're saying there is, they're saying, can this be the one? Could this be Jesus? Could this be the Messiah, this Jesus, the Messiah? Could it be the long-awaited Savior? So the religious elite, the Pharisees, want to nip this type of thinking in the bud. And so they accuse him of satanic authority, Beelzebub, using the lingo of the day. In response, Jesus points out, that his very ministry logically invalidates their claim. If I'm casting out demons and I'm from Satan, it doesn't make any sense. I'm, I'm actually working against myself. In fact, he challenges them to think just the opposite in verse 28. If this is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then God's kingdom has actually come upon you. He's putting it right there in front of them, one or the other. But what I want us to see in this back and forth is that both the Pharisees and Jesus, all people involved in this back and forth, see Satan as an actual person. Satan is an actual person. Pharisees call him by the common name at the time, Beelzebul. Jesus calls him the term we know, Satan, which actually means, when translated, the accuser. 
or the adversary. But both acknowledge that Satan is real, that Satan is actually a person. The author C.S. Lewis famously wrote this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. Satan, he concludes, is equally pleased by both errors and hails a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Brothers and sisters, we have to have a a balanced view of Satan. He exists. He is real. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not a cartoon character that we see, that he's often depicted as. And we can't be too dismissive of him like that or too interested in him, seeing him under every rock, But he is real. In an interview with New Yorker magazine, the late Supreme Court Court Justice Anton Scalia mentioned in his interview briefly in the reality of a devil, that he believed in a devil. The interviewer from the New Yorker was taken aback and stopped the interview and said, you do? You believe in the devil? And listen to what he said. Of course, he's a real person. You're looking at me as if I'm weird. I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so far removed from mainstream America that you're appalled that anyone would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So, brothers and sisters, let's be sober-minded as we go into this text. Satan is real. We have to realize that we have an ancient foe who doth seek to work us woe, as Martin Luther said. Next, we see in our text that the world is Satan's domain. This world is Satan is under Satan's control or, or, or power. He has power in this world. Jesus, if you look there in 29, says, How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? He uses that metaphor of house, meaning this world. Jesus has entered Satan's house through his birth. And this world is Satan's domain. This world is Satan's domain. Jesus, throughout the Gospel of John, calls Satan the prince of this world. In chapter 12, in chapter 14, chapter 16, Jesus himself, this is the prince of the world. When Paul described our state before salvation, he writes this to the Ephesian church. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Even Martin Luther, in his hymn that we just sang, 
He writes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Satan is the prince of this world. The evidence is all around us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? I mean, you just look for evidence, right? Okay, what's the evidence that this that Satan has has power here? It's a messed up world. Right? It's a messed up world. There is starvation on a global scale, isn't there? There's war constantly breaking out. I mean, of the 3,400 years of recorded history, do you know how many years there has not been a war in the world? 268. Less than 8% of recorded history. Wars all the time. Genocide after genocide. Holocaust after Holocaust. Six million in World War II. Three million in the killing fields in Cambodia. Tens of millions. We have no idea how many millions in the Gulag under Stalin. Not to mention Bosnia and Somalia and Iraq and Uganda. The list goes on. There's terrorism. There's racial discord. There's tyranny. And then we get down into the relational level. And we see that that's... Look at, look at marriages failing. Friendships fracturing. Churches even splitting. All this is because this is Satan's domain. He does have power here. This is an upside down kingdom. This is not the way God created it to be. This is not the way God created it to be. I've named this sermon series, perhaps you saw it up there, it was up there briefly, The Upside Down Kingdom. It's not because Jesus is bringing his kingdom, his upside down kingdom into this world. It's because this world is upside down and he's bringing the right side up kingdom in. That's why it sounds so strange to our ears when he says, be last, be more sacrificial, be least. Because this world and sometimes our very nature says, no, 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 I want to be first. I want to be most. I want to be greater. Isn't it funny how Disciples break out into this discussion right after Peter's proclamation that he is the Christ. What is the scuffle that the disciples get into? Who is the greatest? They're buying right into this upside down kingdom. And as his right side up kingdom advances... It's met with vicious opposition. That's what we see in the Gospels, right? Because Satan is powerful. Satan is powerful. Satan is strong. Jesus himself, in verse 29, calls him the strong man. That's the strong man he has to deal with. He just can't walk in. There's somebody there who is strong that's going to oppose him. And he has to deal with him. 
We have to be careful, brothers and sisters, and realize the truth of what Luther penned. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. On earth is not his equal. You are not his equal. You're not his equal. He knows scripture better than you do. He does. He knows your weaknesses better than you do. He's been observing you since birth. He knows just how to tempt you. Not because he's omniscient. He's not. Because he has so much time on his hands. He knows exactly how to accuse you. He's your best friend before you sin and your biggest accuser afterwards. Whispering convincingly after you sin that how could you possibly go to the Easter service after you did what you did? Perhaps some of you have heard that this week. That's the accuser. You shouldn't possibly... How could you possibly serve in church and do what you do. Perhaps that's what you heard too. He says this an awful lot. Captures a lot of people. How can you call yourself a Christian and do what you do? God could never love someone like you. Never. Satan is a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus says in John 10.10. And he steals your joy by tempting you to think in those ways. He kills your enthusiasm for the church by training your eye on the deficiencies and the hypocrisies. He even has power to destroy. Isn't that what the book of Job shows us? Mark Twain wrote this. We may not pay Satan reverence, for that would be indiscreet, but we can at least respect his talents. A person who has for untold centuries maintained the imposing position of spiritual head of four-fifths of the human race and political head of the whole of it must be granted the possession of executive abilities of the loftiest order. Yes. Brothers and sisters, on earth is not his equal. But there is one person who is. Does ask who that might be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Jesus is stronger. Colossians 2 tells us that when you were dead in your sins and transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all of us our sins, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing them over them on the cross. According to Colossians, Jesus is stronger in two ways. Jesus is stronger in two ways. First, Jesus is stronger than your sin. Jesus is stronger 
than your sin. Our oldest daughter, I didn't tell her I was going to use her this morning. Sorry, honey. Our oldest daughter is going away to college this year. And one of her requests is that we watch Lord of the Rings trilogy as a family before she goes. It's one of the things we've done throughout the years as a family. And that, that got me thinking of all the great characters in Lord of the Rings. If you know, read the books or watched the movies, you know, you have the, the strength uh, and, and leadership of Aragorn, right? And the wisdom of Gandalf. And the, and the dedication of Sam Gamgee, right? And self-sacrifice of Frodo. And, you know, you can go on and on and on with Gimli and Legolas and Boromir and Gladriel, all of these characters. But, but there's one here that, that Tolkien wrote about that is salient to, to what we're saying here, and that is Gollum. He wrote Gollum to show the power of sin. And if you know the books or know the movies, you know that... that Everything is about the ring for Gollum, right? He is as precious. And, it, and it's not so much that he loves the ring, it's that the ring has captured him, right? And he shows it, and Tolkien shows this capture of, of sin in very, very obvious ways, right? Of how Gollum has been emaciated by it, right? In the movies, they show this transformation because he's captured by sin. It eats him away. Sin captures us. Sin entraps us. Hebrews 12 tells us that sin so easily entangles us. In his book, Finishing Strong, Steve Farrar sums it up well. He says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing to pay. That's what sin does. The Bible tells us that we are trapped by sin's power and cannot get out. The Bible says that we are trapped by sin's power and we can't get out on our own. We can't. We're like Gollum. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to say that again. Sin will entrap you. And it will cost you more than you're willing to pay. Unless we are released from its power, we will die. Unless we're released from that power, we will be eternally banished from the presence of God in what we colloquially call hell. So what are we to do? God in his kindness, in his mercy, in his love, sent his only son Jesus into the world 
on a mission to free people from that power of sin. And he did it, first of all, by living a perfect life. You and I dupe ourselves into thinking, you know what, if I'm just a good guy... I mean, Blake's a pretty good guy. Everybody kind of likes Blake more or less. If, I'm, if, if most people like me, then I'll get to heaven. And you go, well, if mo-, you know, I treat people nice and, and people are generally positive towards me, I guess that will do it. And we can't do it because we're not nice all the time. We're not perfect all the time. But there was one who was, and that's Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4 tells us that he lived a perfect life under the law. He did not sin. And you know what that means? That means he earned salvation. We like to think we we can earn salvation. We can earn a place in heaven. But Jesus actually did it. He earned a place in heaven. And, And then, even though... We're the ones trapped in sin, not him. Even though we're the ones trapped in sin, he allowed himself to be trapped for us. That's what the message of the cross is all about. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He allowed himself to be trapped. He allowed himself to be tacked on the tree. He allowed himself to take the punishment that we deserve in his body. And he died there, paying the penalty that we deserve for our sin. The Bible says the wages of sin, how you get paid for sin, is death. And Jesus took that death on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He died so that we might live. And he rose three days later. We've sung about it all morning. His resurrection, proving what he said was true, proving what he did is powerful. Powerful enough so that if you believe in him, if you trust in Jesus' work and not your own, you too will be saved. You will go from life to life. And your sin will be forgiven because Jesus nailed it to the cross. Because Jesus is stronger than your sin. But secondly, Jesus is also stronger than Satan. Jesus bound the strong man at the cross. Some co-workers from a company in Chicago went out to lunch one day, and it was a warm September afternoon, and they had the windows open wide, and soon a bee flew in, and after buzzing around a little bit, landed on some of their food. One of the guys there had just finished a, a sparkling grape juice, and he, he opened it and, and put the mouth of the bottle close to the bee and the bee flew right in and he put the cap back on the bottle put it on the table and the bee was at the bottom drinking 
and enjoying itself throughout the whole lunch. What was the worker's purpose in luring the bee into the bottle? Was he concerned about the bee? Did he want the bee to have a pleasant drink? No. Not at all. His purpose was to capture and control. At the cross, Jesus put the cap on the bottle. He has disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan is real. This is Satan's domain. And Satan is, still has power, but he's bound. He's controlled. MacArthur states it this way, Satan is presently still powerful, but his power is limited, his doom is sealed, and his time is short. So, brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Do you know what that word is? It is finished. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Now, Lord, continue to work in us, to work through us, to encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with